This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Banter About Banter Edition. It's Wednesday, November 30th, 2016. On today's show, Moana, it's the new animated Disney film about a Pacific Island princess and her adventures on the high seas. Uh, It features, among many other things, songs by Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's made a kajillion dollars and about to make a kajillion more. We'll discuss it. The old WB classic TV show, The Gilmore Girls, it's returned in a Netflix revival. It's called Gilmore Girls, A Year in the Life. We will discuss with Slate's own Gilmore completist, Seth Stevenson. I'm very excited for that. And finally, do robots have rights? We discuss a brilliant and quite tricky essay by the wonderful Nathan Heller. It appeared in this week's issue of The New Yorker. Joining me is Slate's uh, editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, Stephen. And of course, Slate's uh, film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Um, Julia, I know this week that we have business and I'm very excited about it. What is it? Yeah, we have one important piece of business, which is that the votes are in and our listeners have declared that I am right about Billy on the street and you guys were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So we will revisit that at some future date. But I really think if you counted the votes on Facebook and Twitter, it would be like 37 Julia one Stephen. <laughs> there was like one person who compared my defensibility on the street to also defending Tosh.0, oh, to which I say, I object, cretin. People were actually sending us recommendations, Steve and I, saying, try this episode. If you just watch this episode, you'll see the deep humanity of Billy Eichner. Yep. And I'm going to make you watch those episodes someday, <laughs> but I'll give you a little bit of time first. All right. Sorry. We actually have other business besides me gloating. For Slate Plus today, we have an extremely special guest, which is the wonderful actor Chris Eigman, who, uh, not most notably in his career, but pertinently to this episode, plays one of the Gilmore mom, Lorelai's love interests on the Gilmore Girls, and who, it's not too much of a spoiler to say, makes a cameo in the new Netflix revival. Another fact about Chris Eigman also not most notable but pertinent to the show is that he's a big fan of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. How wonderful. So we are excited to chat with him a bit about his career in the Gilmore Girls. Seth Stevenson will also be sticking around and we'll do a little bit of Gilmore Girl finale spoiler specialing, including assessing the famed final four words of the reunion. I don't know, Stephen Dana, whether you even are aware of the hoopla and hubbub surrounding the final four words, but oh, we will well aware. explain and discuss it and assess whether they were worth waiting for. Um, if you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you should join at slate.com slash culture plus. Number two, we are going to do a call-in show over the holidays And we're going to take an unusual format rather than inviting you all to ask generalized questions about culture and our culture proclivities. We are asking you to ask us for advice, advice of some kind. You can interpret it broadly um, or narrowly. We will strive to give you the answers you most desire. Please call in with your questions at 929-266-4914. Again, that's 929-266-4914 to ask me, Steve, and Dana for advice if you're the sort of person who thinks that is a good idea. 
All right, Steve, I think we can do a show now. Moana is the new mega-hit Disney animated feature film. It has had the second largest Thanksgiving B.O. of all time, huge box office uh, over the long weekend. It tells the story of a Pacific Island princess who must risk her father's ire and venture beyond the perimeter reefs of her island in order to save it from environmental catastrophe. I think it's safe to say that the movie is uh, firmly in the camp of new enlightened Disney. It's a mix of folklore and girl power and banter and animal sidekicks, all of which to come together to tell an ecologically correct story. It features the voice talents of Dana Stevens' Help Me Out. It's a Hawaiian teenager whose name is Ali'i Cravalho. And sorry if I got that wrong, Ali'i Cravalho. Dana, this this movie comes pretty obviously in the wake of um, their uh, previous huge hits, particularly Frozen, um, um, a girl power movie with songs. Um, it's caught on with audiences in a huge way. I'm, I'm not sure I understand exactly why. Maybe you can explain it. You know, I completely understand why. I found it very, very crowd-pleasing. I, mean, I felt no no passion for this movie, but I went with my 10-year-old daughter, who's very hard to drag out to the movies, and we both had a great time. And I feel like it hits... It, you know, obviously we can we can get to, you know, whether this is, is a boring thing to do, but it does hit kind of every Disney sweet spot. The music is really great and fun. The voice work is pretty amazing in that The Rock does his own singing, <laughs> which I found very charming. And uh, and the, the young lady who voices Moana is a wonderful singer, too. Um, and yeah, it's it is sort of generic in those Disney sweet spots that it hits. But it, it hits them pretty, pretty well. I thought it's got it's got some good comic sidekicks. The cute animal that accompanies Moana on her, her journey is this great stupid chicken that my daughter and I loved and imitated for the rest of the night. A chicken so stupid that he doesn't even peck at food. You have to sort of point him in the right direction. Um, I don't know. I, I, I laughed. Can't say that I cried. I tapped my toes and I walked out humming one of the songs, which I hope we'll listen to later. I laughed and cried. I liked it a lot. Also, don't think I'll think about it ever again. And actually found the songs sort of unmemorable, despite the obvious notes and tones of Lin-Manuel. Like, you will hear Hamiltoniana, Lin-Manueliana in the lyrics from time to time, but the feeling of, like, those songs are in my head for days, they've all evaporated from my brain, even though they're perfectly charming in the context of the I can test you on one of those songs, and okay. I think we should listen to a clip of it at some point in the segment. It's the song that happens right after the, the spoken clip that we just heard when Maui, the character, the demigod who's played by Dwayne Johnson, uh, bursts into song trying to convince Moana that she should worship him as a demigod. Let's listen to it now. Sky, when you were waddling yay high, this guy... When the nights got cold, who stole you fire from down below? <laughs> Look at him, yo! Oh, also I lasso the sun. You're welcome to stretch your days and bring you fun. Also I harness the breeze. You're welcome to fill your sails and shake your trees. So what can I say except you're welcome for the islands I pulled from the sea? There's no need to pray, it's okay, you're welcome. Ha. I guess it's just my way of being me. You're welcome. So just to counter Julia saying that the songs were totally unmemorable, with a lot of the songs I might agree, I enjoyed them at the time but could never hum them now. But my daughter and I, every time the words you're welcome are actually uttered in the context of conversation since seeing that movie, have burst into some line or other <laughs> from that song. We're particularly fond of the line when he says, I'm just an ordinary demi guy. I mean, it's just it's just clever. They're good lyrics. Yeah, and you can hear even in that little clip, like, 
little bits of syntactical playfulness that sound like Lin-Manuel Miranda. Not that, you know, the the classic Disney songs of The Little Mermaid or Aladdin or, you know, some of some of the other golden ages of Disney filmmaking haven't also had clever lyrics, but the particular cleverness sounds like Lin-Manuel Miranda's cleverness to me. I think you hear that the most in that song. And that scene is very visually inventive, too. It's kind of the showstopper for me of the movie. And it comes a little bit early for a showstopper. But the visuals in that scene are great, too, because he's, as you've probably seen in the millions of trailers that are everywhere from Moana, the character Maui is heavily tattooed. And his tattoos during this song and in other parts of the movie, too, come to life and start sort of dancing to the music and acting out the lyrics. And it's just it's a very clever visual. I thoroughly enjoyed that number. I mean, I, I, I sort of when I saw Tangled, I remember thinking that it that you know Disney was really making an effort to do something very very lively, clever, somewhat original, and feminist. And I, I, I really liked Tangle. Then I saw Frozen. I thought they've taken that template and they've perfected it. This is going to be huge. The songs you know pop really stay with you. And now this one felt relative to those. It just struck me as somewhat automated. I mean, I I, I like that the princess isn't there to be rescued. I really like that there's a attempt to use, um, you know, folkloric culture in a way that's somewhat authentic and honorable. Um, I, I didn't, I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I liked it. I didn't understand why my kids loved it. My 13 year old daughter, who is a portrait of withering cynicism, wanted to see it the next day. And oh. I, yeah, yeah. Amazing. I mean, she loved it and I couldn't, pick out what it was from the movie that she really loved. What did she like about it so much, Steve? You know, I think I think what what she said to me was she really appreciated the ending and I don't want to give anything away, but for the last let's call it 10 minutes of the movie it almost shifts into a Miyazaki movie from a Disney movie and she found that very convincing that there's a that that instead of vengeful triumph there's a kind of um, redemptive uh, series of images that actually she found quite powerful. And I don't disagree with her. I thought that they were, in some respects, quite a lovely way to end the movie. You know, I was going to say, Steve, I don't think my daughter responded as strongly as as your older one did. She wouldn't have wanted to go back and see the movie the next day, but she did really love it. I think a huge part of what may have appealed to her about it, it was the heroine's agency and the fact that she was there wasn't a question of her sort of having to apologize for being a tomboy or or fight her way through some kind of sexist resistance or something. Essentially, from the moment you first meet the Moana character, when she's just a toddler at the very beginning of the movie, she's a go getter. She wants to go to sea. She wants to solve her culture's problems. She wants to lead and have adventures. And that's what she does. And that in itself is very, as you say, kind of Miyazakian and also fairly un-Disney, I would say. I mean, there have been some tomboy heroines in, in Disney recently, but they usually have to you know, have a love interest or overcome some sort of resistance to their character. And I, I kind of loved that she was just a, a feminist go-getter all the way. But one thing you're not mentioning, Steve, that this movie has that Tangled and Frozen doesn't that I thought was really well accomplished is that there are no white people in it. I mean, it's 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 just great to see a movie for kids in which there's not just diversity in one brown or black character, but a whole culture of non-American, non-white people. I mean, I know nothing about Polynesian folklore, but I know they did get consultants galore on this movie. And it, it felt like, you know, sure, in a disnified, uplifting, inspiring kind of eye candy way. But it felt like it was a real attempt to to plunge us into a very different world and a different culture where the princess looks different from your average Disney princess and she's surrounded by a world of people that look that way. And that's just fine and unquestioned and normal. 
Yeah, I think the thing that's sort of puzzling about this movie as an object of cultural discussion for us is that it's radical in all these ways that don't feel radical to us. You know, it's taken great care to be culturally sensitive in all kinds of ways. There's a ton of research on the storytelling. There are a lot of cultural traditions represented with some care and fidelity. They took care to cast primarily actors of Polynesian descent in some way or another for the main roles, which I think you can have a broader debate about the ethics and artistic principles of racially or sexually accurate casting. But to the degree that that's the thing that people care about and value, like they took care to find you know, to not just like hire Emma Stone to play a Hawaiian person. Um, to or work. any movie star. I appreciate that except for The Rock, there's no star power in the voice cast, which is, is kind of great. The heroine doesn't have a love interest. She's not pining to get married. She resists the princess narrative in various ways that aren't then resolved by her being like a tomboy who's tamed by the right guy, um, which is where the tomboy narratives of, of Disney princess movies sometimes end up to the degree that they have tomboy narratives at all. And those things are actually things worth being excited about, like being able to take pleasure in the visual spectacle, relatively strong song craft and escapist delight of hanging out in, you know, a, a virtual tropical wonderland in the middle of a cold November evening and not be offended on gender or racial principles is great. Like, that's great. But it also feels that, like things have changed so fast on the cultural front that it feels... It already feels obvious and like it should be what's happening in some way. I also do want to point out just briefly that on the gender front, you know, the movie's getting so much credit for not having a like stick thin white wastrel as the princess um, for having, you know, slightly more strong and sturdy seeming body types and um, not having any white characters in the movie, et cetera. All of that is fine. I will say that Moana's face is like a fucked up Barbie face. It's like a slightly different fucked up Barbie face, like with broader cheekbones or whatever, but she still has like eyes the size of goblets and like a little pert princess mouth that looks like it's molded from plastic. Like it's not, she doesn't exactly, it's like not super radical on the gender presentation front. Right. I mean, I could, could one reason all of the, these good intentions appear unradical to us is that they're filtered through four count them four white male directors mm. let me let me complete the thought which is that there's a difference between representing your own culture that is not the dominant culture for the dominant culture and the dominant culture convening a committee to be sensitive towards your culture in order to portray it for commercial gain, right? I mean, this is this feels as though it was put through a very good and very sensitive committee in order to make it broadly acceptable, um, you know, as the commercial product that it is. I just think that that's a difference worth noting. I I liked the movie, I really did, and I'm not offended by the fact that it was filtered through the corporate sensibilities of Disney. That is sort of the, um, you know, mo of the operation. Yeah, I mean, see, of course, that's that's a huge question, and that is true not only of Disney animated movies, but throughout Hollywood, that what you see up on screen may be changing, right? The representation of gender and race and transgender and all these things may be changing, but the authorship is still lagging far behind in that respect. All right, well, the movie is Moana. It's from Disney. Uh, it's making a billion dollars. Maybe um, maybe 10 of them will be yours. Let us know at Facebook.com what you thought of it. We'd or 22 if you see it in 3D with reserved seats like I did. Oh my God. Did it look good in 3D? Oh 
you know, Julia, I saw it only in 2D, not 3D, but this is the rare movie that I might have rather seen in 3D because this is something we haven't talked about much, but the, the animation was pretty stunning. And it's a thing that is known to be hard to do in computer animation, something that Pixar worked to conquer for years and years is showing water, showing moving water and the way that water flows. And water is almost a character in this movie. In fact, it is kind of animate. It's a it's this this force that helps Moana along on her journey. And there's a point that where she high fives with the water or, you know, the water carries her around. And uh, and that was really beautifully rendered and just very cool to look at. Moana, it's at a theater near you, I'm sure. Um, see it and then tell us at facebook.com slash culture why we're all wrong about it. All right, moving on. Gilmore Girls was an hour long dramedy. It ran for seven seasons, first on the WB, later on the CW, I guess same thing, different name. It told the story of Lorelai Gilmore as she raises her daughter Rory in the fictional town of Stars Hollow, Connecticut. It may have been a super idealized version of both single motherhood and Connecticut, but who cares? <laughs> the show was witty and heartfelt. Now everyone has reunited for Gilmore Girls, A Year in the Life. We get Luke in his diner and Melissa McCarthy is the kooky chef. But most of all, we get the real ending of the show, which we will not spoil. We will spoil it a little bit in the plus, but in this segment, we won't. But um, I was very pleased to discover that Seth Stevenson, longtime Slate contributor, is a Gilmore Girl completist, a super fan. So glad to be here. We should be talking a lot faster than you usually do. For this <laughs> With larger mugs of coffee. I know. I'm not sure we can handle the like banter requirements of this segment, the pop culture references. Like we're, we're They're going to put us to shame, Rory and Lorelai. All right. For those like me and Steve who are relative neophytes, or maybe some listeners are total neophytes and don't know this banter and rhythm that the show has, maybe we should listen to a clip. Oh, come on, Mom, admit it. Admit what? You spinal tapped the painting. What? You spinal tapped the painting. You gave them the wrong dimensions or they wrote down the wrong dimensions. And now you're trying to pretend that that massive portrait is something you actually intended. It was. It was. Yes. You intended for Dad's eyebrow and my forearm to be exactly the same length? Yes. I don't believe you wanted a portrait of Dad so massive it doesn't fit on the wall. Well, I did. A portrait so big, Peter Jackson could hang it at the Argonaut. Yes, he could. You don't know what the Argonaut is. Doesn't matter. It's a nice picture of Grandpa. Mom, do it over. Get what you want. You have the money. This is what I want. I swear it can't be. Why not? Because look at it. It's nuts. Wizard, you shall not pass. Seriously. Fine. I made a mistake. Are you happy? I gave them the wrong dimensions and they screwed it up. I'm a screw up. I admit it. Just please, please don't let this be the only thing you remember to say at my funeral. I had never seen the show before. My um, younger daughter loves it um, and can recite it chapter and verse. Um, what uh, what makes a, a grown man um, a Gilmore Girls fan? So, uh, well, I started watching the show when it first came on the air. I was twenty six, so still relatively young, although not maybe the sixteen year old girl that the show is targeted at in part. Uh, well, for me, there's a couple of things. First of all, it's set in a, in a preppy New England town with preppy New England characters, and that appealed to me as a preppy New Englander. Um, also, uh, uh, that it's the um, the other thing is that the entire town is is like a screwball comedy. It's like living inside a Preston Sturgis movie. Um, everyone talks fast. Things happen unpredictably. Suddenly, the entire town is is going to a, a Racerhead film festival, and everyone's into it. But you never know what's going to happen, and the dialogue is um, really witty and quick. Um, it can sometimes go sour. You know, when failed Preston Surges is, is sort of the worst possible dialogue of all dialogues, and, and it's it's problematic when that happens. But when it's good, it's very good. Um, and the town itself is this wonderful community that you want to live inside. And and over these many seasons, you get to know these eccentric characters who become friends, and and they stay with the show the entire time. Um, and and you kind of it's it's a 
it's a beautiful universe that that Amy Sherman Palladino, the creator, um, has made, and and I and I just like to luxuriate in it and watch the show. And then the the other element of it is, it's it's emotionally beautiful. It's this mother daughter relationship that's unique and and wonderful, and and it's about family and the saga that happens, and um and it and it the shift from madcap screwball comedy to heavy emotional moment can be um, sometimes um, really poignant and moving. I will chime in on that as someone else who was a fairly devout fan of the series when it originally aired and who may fall more obviously into Steve's mental camp of who should be a Gilmore Girls fan um, as a like series about fast talking, hyper literate, uh, smarty pants, New Englander girls. Like I liked this show a lot. I think what felt exciting and radical about it to me when I first watched it was that it felt it felt like Buffy without the goblins. It felt like I was going to say realist Buffy, but but <laughs> if there's one thing that Gilmore Girls is absolutely not, it is realist. There are like magical dance sequences and the whole town is 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 fantastical in a way that's like part Preston Sturgis, but also part like you know, I was I was thinking of Frank Capra when you were talking about the setup of the town. You know, there's this optimism and this sweetness about the world mm-hmm. that she builds. Um, it's also quite a dense world. There's a lot of characters in this show, as I'm sure Steve and I are well aware as non-watchers trying to be plunged into its universe. I mean, there's like 20 people you have to keep track of, and that sort of reminded me of the the way that Capra's movies will often be about whole institutions or whole villages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's just a lot going on. But the thing that felt exciting to me about it at the time was like Buffy the Vampire Slayer felt like this totally groundbreaking show with a kind of female heroine that I hadn't seen before who was really smart and strong and had, you know, romantic travails and woes, but they weren't all that defined her and had really fun, interesting, smart friends who had like a purpose and selfhood in the world that felt really specific and strong and female and more like me and my friends than anybody I'd seen represented on screen before. Like, not that my friends are vampire slayers or running inns in rural Connecticut, but just like they felt like real women in some way, even though obviously the Gilmore Girls and Buffy the Vampire Slayer are very unreal in many ways. Specificity and fullness of the ways in which they were imagined and the like total commitment to these bizarre worlds where these really fascinating, competent women existed um, and they don't all look like catalog models. And the pop culture references were pop culture references that that you liked, right? <laughs> yeah, like they just – right. It felt like they, they related to the broader world in a way that felt similar to my friends. I watched most of it. I think I did fall off. I think I never watched the final season. Here's, I guess, where we should rehearse the – the non-Sherman Palladino The season. great legend. So – this show was created by Amy Sherman Palladino with her husband, Daniel Palladino. They ran the show for six seasons and there was some kind of contract dispute. They did not work on the final and seventh season of the show. Fans tend to consider that season like non-canonical in some way. Amy Sherman Palladino publicly announced that there was four words that the series was supposed to end on and it did not in the original non-Sherman Palladino final season. She went on to create Bunheads, which we discussed and loved and has di- since died and was similarly whimsical and had a similarly strong and strange brunette at its center in Sutton Foster. But I just really love this show. And I feel like it it and Buffy are the forebears of like the, the broadly more interesting women who exist in pop culture today. And not just young women. I, one of the things I really like about Gilmore Girls is there's there's more to do for over 45 actresses than like on the rest of television combined. And there are these – Lauren Graham is an incredible actress um, and Kelly Bishop who plays 
Emily Gilmore, um, the the elder Gilmore girl, um, is an amazing actress with who has so much to do in this show and has so many fun lines um, and is just delightful. Um, and then Melissa McCarthy was in, you know, the original series and, and with, um, she plays a clumsy chef who makes delicious things, but then spills them on everyone and, and she's hilarious. Um, so there are just all these wonderful roles, um, for terrific actresses that are a joy to behold. I have to say, I really enjoyed it, but I, uh, what I did watch of it, which was quite a bit, um, in the end, but, um, a couple of comments is it, it's it, the, the, sh- what the show seems to me you almost uniquely good at it, is filling you with nostalgia for an America you almost certainly didn't experience in anything other than pop culture, right? So there's a country in, there are fancy prep schools, uptight rich parents, super friendly diners. Um, you know, it's it's a, sm- a small town utopia that I think is increasingly rare. And it's perfectly fair to feel some nostalgia, nostalgia for it. But then also it, on top of that, it's brilliant at a kind of meta nostalgia for itself, which is characterizing more and more of pop culture. So even though I had to sort of skip through episodes from each season to get the gist of it and then watch as much of the final, you know, four episodes as I could, it was very good at recycling its own milestones and kind of lingering nostalgically over where itself it had been. Um, and it does it beautifully. But what, what I find so interesting is that the coherent thing at the center of it is the actual common experience that Americans have now, which is of pop culture. And it seems to me that's just the dominant feature, of, uh, it, with the exception of the relationship between the mother and the daughter, which obviously, you know, is, is as Seth says, emotionally true, or else the show never could have survived as long as it did. Um, the thing is this kind of cavernous, cluttered, echoey chamber that we all have kind of somewhat sadly um, built out of pop culture detritus. Um, And in a weird way, it's that that makes our nostalgia for what we didn't have in its place, which was country inns and prep schools and rich parents and friendly diners. It makes that kind of very keen in a way. And so I found the show brilliant, but Seth, I have to admit it occasionally slightly manipulative. Um, Sure, that's fair. And I mean, I think it is... Part of the appeal is that there's this wonderful sense of community within the show where everyone knows each other and everyone's welcome, no matter how old they are or, you know, what they do. Everyone comes together and, and, but they do come together around like the Eraserhead Film Festival. You're right that, that, that it's, it is, it is around pop culture. Um, I would say, you know, the other besides mother daughter relationships and, um, very specific to Amy Sherman Palladino zany pop culture references, I would say the other big theme of the show is class issues. Um, you know, no, nobody in this town is, is hurting. Nobody's really in poverty. Um, the class issues here are sort of haves and have mores. The, where the inciting incident of the entire show in the first episode is that Lorelai, who, who had Rory at 16 years old and is raising her as a single mom, wants to send her to the fancy prep school, Chilton, and she can't afford to. And so she's forced to go to her parents, who are these Hartford Brahmins that her dad is in the insurance business and they have tons of money. And she has to go to them, prostrate herself to ask for money to send Rory, the 16-year-old, to the private school, which Lorelai sees as this very important thing for Rory to do, um, whereas Lorelai had lived a more middle-class existence. And all throughout the show, Rory then goes to Yale, and Rory, as like a comfortably middle-class person who's culturally very sophisticated and well-educated, bumps up against these super rich people when she gets to Yale. And so it's, again and again, it's these like middle-class people bumping up, against, uh, bumping up against super rich people who have enough money to manipulate them and control them. So, you know, Rory's super rich boyfriend 
can sort of control her with his money or Lorelai's parents can sort of control her with their money. And that's the other theme that comes into the show and is is, is sort of underappreciated the way it, it gets at that stuff. That stuff really hit me differently this time. I mean, I think I was really interested in the show from a gender lens in its original version and coming back at it, you know, 10 years, with 10 years more perspective on the world, the notion that like, the show seems a little myopic. It's like the concerns of white people in Connecticut. Sure. Oh, oh, the woe of only owning an inn and not being an insurance tycoon, uh, you know. And there's, like, one minority friend who gets, like, three lines in the the finale. Well, and the mother and has, a bunch of, has a bunch of Spanish-speaking ser- servants who she seems unclear on what language they're speaking. Yeah, I didn't keeps, love the way they mentioning handled that. that. That joke <laughs> fell a little flat. No, that joke is terrible. It really, really plays badly. I mean, I... I I believe that the conceit from the original show is that Emily Gilmore, the woman played wonderfully by Kelly Bishop, who's the haughty matriarch, and really the mother-daughter relationship between Lorelai and Emily is as central and fascinating, arguably more fascinating than the one between uh, Lorelai and her daughter Rory. But but I think the joke in the original show was like she was such a haughty bitch that she had a different housekeeper in every episode. And in this episode, she has this whole family living with her and uh, she barely understands them and treats them. First of all, they stick around and she treats them with somewhat more regard. So I think you're supposed to understand it's the change in her personality, but like also fundamentally she can't get basic, like they're not human. They're not fully human on the show. And it's like really a big fucking problem. (laughs) If you ask me like that whole plot line is terrible. There must've been a different way to execute that. So I found myself more frustrated by the myopia. Like there was at one point where, Rory was making some sad, like, poor little face of like, I'm going to stick up and find my independence from my rich boyfriend, Logan, whose dad is a publishing heir. And then you're like, what the fuck? She just can fall back on her own rich family and their own rich shit. Like, come on, Rory, get your shit together. Like, you know, it just it it all that stuff seemed a little icky this time in a way that I don't think I noticed last time. Well, it was a little different the first time around when Lorelai, you know, got pregnant at 16, which was a huge deal. You know, her, her mother's in the DAR and is going to these club functions and stuff. And her her daughter gets pregnant at 16. And Lorelai can't stand the haughtiness and runs away and then has to support herself and does. And that and that's a big part of the show the first time around. Now, Lorelai is very comfortable and owns her own inn. And, and so all that stuff has gotten, a, you know, makes a little less sense at this point. And Rory is age 32, right? So her flailing around beginning to start her writing career and, you know, whining about boyfriends seems it, it just it, it puts her mother's teenage struggle in a whole different light. And to me, made her seem like a bit of an entitled jerk. I also just thought, Julie, especially you as an editor, would find it amusing, the sort of portrait of what it is to be a young freelance journalist. I mean, we get the impression that Rory has about, I don't know, like two clips to her name, right? Yes. Including her some Slate, apparently. Yeah, we should look up her Slate clip. And Slate see was it... actually name dropped in yes. the yeah, Gilmore yeah. Girls. It I was in the that. original series and then also in these new ones. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, she's, she seems to be traveling all around the world and, you know, being a glamorous, successful journalist on the strength of having published three things. In general, about the revival, I, you know, I will confess I had a very low bar. I, I just wanted to be in Stars Hollow, which is this fictional town again. I, I just wanted to be there and see those characters again and and live in that universe again. But but uh, it, it, there was a lot of filler. There was a lot of stuff that fell flat, but I just didn't care. I just I could have kept I could have really done like two more <laughs> 
90 minute episodes of it, to be honest. I just, I just like being in that world. So my bar was very low. As for the final four words, which I'm not going to reveal, we're not going to tell you what they were. Until Slate Plus. Until Slate Plus. I, I've heard a lot of people say they were not happy with them. I was thrilled with them. And one of the problems is that they were, the, the argument is they were originally planned uh, for when Rory was 23 and, and Lorelai was 38 or 39. And they have now been spoken when Rory is 32 and Lorelai is 48. And so they have a very different texture because of that. But I thought that was kind of, it was still kind of interesting where they were in their lives when the words were said, I thought was interesting. And I thought it spun off, you know, you could imagine all sorts of things happening in the future. And that was fun to do. Um, and it, it was history sort of repeating itself and echoing itself without giving too much away. And I loved it. People think of like The Sopranos or Mad Men or whatever as the as the beginning of peak TV. But this was certainly a show that bore the mark of its founding brain firmly from the beginning and only more so in this final four revived episodes. And uh, mostly it was just fun to be back there. You know, as long as we're talking about the the very idiosyncratic interior of Amy Sherman Palladino's brain, I just want to put a plea out there, which is that if the Palladinos, Amy and Daniel, have the power to just revive series at will like this, can they please do it with bunheads? I miss that show so much, and I consider it so superior to what little I've seen of this one. So, I mean, this is turning into an endorsement, but I think people should go back and watch the two seasons of bunheads that exist and see if you don't want to beg Netflix to to dump a few more it's, episodes It's like on methadone it. for Gilmore Girls addicts. It's, it's <laughs> you can just go back and watch those 10 or 11 episodes or To me, it works it the other way. I feel like the world of, of bunheads is, is far more interesting, and I would much rather be suspended there forever. <laughs> All right. Well, it's, um, it's a, the revival of Gilmore Girls on Netflix. Uh, check it out. I'm sure they're going to be, I mean, the Venn diagram, the teeming Venn diagram between Gilmore Girls fans and the Culture Gap Fest. I can only imagine we'd love to hear from you. Go to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us uh, what you thought of it. Seth, thanks so much for coming on. Dude, it is always a huge pleasure. Let's find an excuse to have you back soon. Thanks, Steve. All right, moving on. In confronting similarity and difference, we are forced to set the limits of our species' moral reach, so writes Nathan Heller in the latest uh, issue of The New Yorker magazine. Uh, the point that he's making is that when we ask ourselves whether or not animals have the same rights as humans do, we're in effect, asking ourselves, how do we boundary ourselves in relation to the non-human? We are on the verge of a new moral frontier, confronting that the different but similar thing is no longer an animal, which is at least biologically derived creature that experiences pain and, we believe, emotion, but a machine, along the way to asking, do robots have rights? Are they more like humans? Are they more like animals? Or are they more like coffee machines? A thing that has utility and can be turned on and off at will. Dana, let me start with you. The Philosophical question about the moral status of animals has been around for hundreds of years. Uh, Descartes thought that they had absolutely no moral status whatsoever. In 1975, Peter Singer, an American ethicist, wrote a very influential book claiming that they have exactly the same uh, moral rights as human beings. The basis for the argument, Dana, about whether or not animals have moral rights gets at why we endow other humans with moral rights. We discern a similarity that similarity can be, you know, based in the fact that we're all conscious or we all reason or we all feel pain. And therefore, we extend a right to the similar creature. The question about robots then really boils down to, as they become more complex, do we believe that they've achieved a kind of ontological similarity, sorry to use that phrase, with human beings sufficient to make them rights-bearing creatures? Or is that idea just absurd that a machine is just always going to be more like a lawnmower? or an automobile, 
um, you know, or a hammer, uh, then it's going to be like um, a brother, a sister, a lover, um, uh, a fellow citizen. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 as you say, is a venerable question in philosophy, right? The question of what separates the animal from the human goes back to Aristotle, at least probably earlier than that. But the way Heller brings that that older question into conversation with questions about robot sentience seems particularly timely at a moment when more and more jobs are being replaced by automation and we're all watching Westworld. Well, not me, but everyone else seems to be watching Westworld, which deals with some of these questions of artificial intelligence and uh, the achievement of sentience by machines. And uh, I really like the way he frames this question by starting out with a scene that everyone knows, the moment at the beginning of this year, I believe, when uh, when the, the gorilla Harambe was shot at the Cincinnati Zoo after a child fell into his enclosure. So he starts off with, you know, a, a sort of a depiction of the animal rights debate that followed that gorilla assassination. And then with, with that question leads into the question of, of robot sentience. Did the, I mean, the article, we should say, is beautifully written by a friend of the program and of Slate, Nathan Heller. Um, but did it bring you close to believing that it's possible to, and first of all, that it's possible that a machine will be sufficiently conscious to be sufficiently human-like uh, to be a bearer of rights on moral par with human beings? You know, in an interesting way, I don't think that is exactly the question that Heller is trying to answer here. I suspected, you know, upon us deciding to read this article and beginning it, that it was going to move toward a kind of Blade Runner zone, that it was going to be a, about about uh, the singularity, you know, and about this moment that technology mm -hmm. achieves consciousness and that it would be asking those kinds of questions. And I think, in fact, what Heller is interested in doing is using both animal rights and robot rights to talk about anthropomorphism, projection, and the way that the human defines itself in in contraposition to what's not human, right? So, I mean, there's not really a moment here where he is interested in, for example, interviewing a robotics expert about how close their invention is to achieving consciousness. And when he describes, for example, in a very interesting part of the article, he describes these experiments where people were given human-like or animal-like robots and told first to kind of interact with them in a, in a sentient-seeming way, and then to do things like tie them up and dis decapitate and dismember them. And almost every subject of the experiment resisted doing this and uh, and tried to either defend their robot or, you know, unplug their robot so that it wouldn't, quote, feel pain. And so I think what he's really interested in exploring here is our own internal map of what consciousness and humanity is and what the borders of those things are. Do you see what I mean? I mean, this is not an article about yes, robotics, no, really. That... It's not It's not interested in exploring robotics and the future of AI as much as it's interested in talking about our interior perception. One thing that I found with it, and, and this zooms out wildly from the philosophical questions, and you guys can zoom back in if you would prefer not to take this philistinic approach, but like, I'm not ready for the robot revolution. It does not feel real to me. I get that self-driving cars are coming, that they're, like, here, that they're going to be here, that I'm, that like, maybe the next car, I, mm, probably not the next car, but, like, maybe the car after that will be self-driving in some way. This does not yet feel like a pressing moral problem to me. Like, just generally, like, automation as as a force, which I have no intellectual doubt will be shaping our futures vastly in the coming decades, does not yet feel like a pressing end personal concern. And I dearly think and believe this is a short-sighted oversight of mine. Like, I'm not defending that position or posture towards robots and robotics and artificial intelligence as, like, the way to go or the way to live in the world. Reading Heller's piece forced me to confront the degree to which I have not yet confronted our robot future, particularly. Are you guys, like, 
are your minds tootling around in self-driving cars already all the time? Like, mm-hmm. are you are you preoccupied by these concerns? No, I never think about self-driving cars, maybe because I don't drive. But but the description that he makes of the moral calculus that a designer of self-driving cars would have to make did sort of make me snap to attention and think, geez, self-driving cars are going to be a, a big revelation in the way we think about autonomy and morality. Mm-hmm. And he asks this yes. very simple question, you know, if a self-driving car had the choice, it had to either mow down 10 pedestrians or drive its driver into a wall and kill its driver, what would the self-driving car do, right? This, this is a kind of extreme ticking time bomb scenario, but it is the kind of thing that you would have to figure in when you're trying to, to design this car and sell this car. And as he points out, that will also figure into the marketing of this object. Right. Is like Buick mm. going to become the like won't kill you brand? <laughs> like the killing only goes the other way. The expensive mm-hmm. cars will kill the pedestrians. The cheap ones will kill and the And then driver. the Prius will be like the morally responsible one. Like not only will it save the planet if there's a choice between killing you and killing 20. Or do you, can you set a dial? Like if it's just going to kill two or three other people, I'd rather live. But once it gets four and above, like will that, will that be in like the settings? Like the, the weird thing that you can do with the steering wheel where you like move it up and down that nobody ever does? Uh, not only do I live out in the country, I have kids who do ballet. Um, and kayaking and various other activities. And the, the rule seems to be they can't be any closer than 45 to, you know, 80 minutes away. Um, so I drive all the time. So I think endlessly about driverless cars, how I'd be able to, you know, sip a latte and, um, and uh, you know, um, surf the internet and write my bad novel in the back of a pod. Um, you know. Um, you wouldn't even have to go in the pod. Just pop those tots in there. Yeah, there's that. I've certainly had that fantasy too. But um, uh, I still say that this article, for all of your brilliant praise of it, uh, Dana and Julia, is it, it, the the subhead is do robots have rights? And I think we have to move beyond anthropomorphism morphism in order to understand whether or not we would ever give robots rights. So I don't know. I mean, to me, it just feels like until until actually artificial intelligence achieves like independent sentience. Like that's the moment, the Blade Runner moment, where it's like, okay, you seem like you're feeling feelings. I mean, I I feel like arguments along these lines are built on a on a kind of broken syllogism in a way that because one wing of philosophy insists that consciousness just human consciousness just is its behavioral and functionalist manifestations, therefore the brain is so analogous to a computer hard drive, it's essentially a super complex, obviously you know, evolutionarily derived microprocessor that um, once we're able to make a sufficiently complex microprocessor, it too will have the same features of consciousness, one of which is the ability to be humiliated um, uh, emotionally and to uh, suffer both physically and spiritually, and therefore we auto-endow it with rights. But to me, that's just a completely nonsensical, the premise that it begins with is false, that in fact we don't know enough about consciousness yet, even biologically, even scientifically, to know what its relationship is to the wetware that generates it. Therefore, we don't really know whether processing capacity is what eventually gives rise to identity and consciousness, the capacity to suffer and the capacity to be humiliated. And I think until you work out that first mystery, you're never ever going to be able to make this leap to robot consciousness and therefore robot rights. So I never, I, I love Nathan Nathan Heller's work. He's 
arguably one of my three or four favorite New Yorker writers. Um, but I felt like the piece could never take off for me morally because to me, the answer just was no. Like as soon as I saw that question mark right up top, I said, no, of course not, right? This is just a, ontological subjectivity is a feature unique to human beings. You can extrapolate it from it to animals because clearly animals suffer and can, I believe, suffer humiliation, which is why animals should be endowed with certain rights. Um, but but the leap from biologically generated consciousness to anything like machine sentience to me is so tenuous, I can't even begin to like morally reason in the direction of, of rights for machines. Okay, so a hard no from Steve on whether robots have rights. <laughs> I'm curious to hear you mark out, though, as the as the person who's dabbled most with vegetarian and veganism among us, Steve, not to call you a food dilettante, but I guess I just did. You know, you're you're the person among us who's been most animated around various questions of animal rights in some capacity. How do you square? Like, does does Nathan's analogy challenge your robot dismissal at all? I don't think I don't think so because I think we, you know, we share you know, we share the preponderance of the evolutionary tree with animals. And so it's not a huge mystery to us that they are experiencing creatures. And withholding suffering is the goal of moral life. And therefore, you know, you know, dot, 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 like you can iterate out that argument pretty quickly. I just think that the gap between between biological and machine life is is total. It's It's unbridgeable. I mean, I could be it, I could be proven wrong, right? I mean, you know, but but it, as of now, it just to me is is a conceptual leap that we almost don't have to make because they're so different. I mean, on the issue of of like how you endow rights with, it, I mean, it, that is an enormously complex philosophical question, right? Like how much, what's the relationship between physical and spiritual suffering? What's the relationship between um, humiliation and physical pain? Um, you know, I mean, you know, what kind of a memory does an animal have? It's some of them having extraordinary, like crows have incredible, almost multi-gen, I mean, I think it's been demonstrated multi-generational memories, um, that offspring of offspring of offspring of crows won't return to a place where, um, uh, violent things have happened to the flock. And, and so I, you know, I, I understand how those questions get generated without being able to tell you how to answer them, but I think they're valid because the categories are coherent, that people are thinking in are, are coherent enough, and there's enough of an apple-to-apple apple or fruit-to-fruit comparison between human experience and animal experience that you just, you're just not, you're not even close to being there yet with, um, with computers. Steve, the way that you describe rights and the discourse of rights and what kind of being is entitled to them evolving, essentially evolving in an almost, you know, um, Darwinian way, doesn't necessarily describe the way that that rights actually have evolved legally in, in sort of cultural history in the last, well, obviously the whole concept of rights is relatively new, right? The concept of, of human rights as being the, the founding principle of government is about as old as democracy is, right? A few hundred years. And this is getting a little bit off of Heller's article, but in some research I've been doing recently, I was amazed to learn that children's rights actually came along. The concept of children's rights and the sort of children's rights movement, for example, trying to end child labor, came significantly after the animal rights revolution. So the mm -hmm. ASPCA and the British equivalent of the ASPCA pre-existed the, the, you know, even the beginning of child labor laws or the outlawing of child abuse or the conception that a child in an abusive family should be taken out of that family by 
50 to 25 years. So we think of the evolution of rights as having this this natural quality, right? And that those things that are closest to us, for example, the human child, right, who resembles us more than any animal species does, would seem to be one of the first beings that you would extend those rights to. But in fact, historically, that was not the direction that rights evolved in. And I'm bringing that in only to kind of complicate this question mm-hmm. of, of where robots right. or artificial intelligence would fit right. in and all I, this. I, I, Dana, I think that's brilliant, but I, don't, I just want to be clear. I don't think that we have rights because we're biologically or evolutionarily derived creatures. In fact, I think something quite close to the opposite of that. And when you look at the history of rights, clearly similarity, I mean, Nathan is brilliant about this, similarity and difference is the basis for inclusion and and exclusion um, within a a rights regime. Um, The one way in which it's culturally evolutionary is that we do seem progressively to move in the direction of a universal or near universal conception of the human so that everything human is sufficiently similar to be endowed with a right. Um, And that mode of recognition, I don't think is biological at all. I think it's totally anti-biological in some respects. I mean, I just don't think, the mistake then is to say that because that's been expansive and expansive to include animals, why shouldn't it then expand to include um, robots? Because to me, that's like asking, well, why shouldn't it expand to include stars or um, golf balls? But that's me. We, we We shouldn't have done this. This is like one of these hobby horses that I get on and cannot get off. I am a total anti-AI, um, you know, machine consciousness, you know, uh, person in this, to the extent that I'm a sideliner on this philosophical debate. I mean, I, I in the in the philosophy of mind, I just think, you know, human beings have mentality um, in ways that kind of nothing else does. And that's essentially mysterious. Like biological explanations don't explain it, um, have yet to explain it, and I don't think that they ever fully will. Ergo, we won't design something that mimics human mentality enough to endow it with rights. Again, this is my own insane little hobby horse, which I will now get off. But I mean, all, all I would say is that I don't think you're necessarily arguing against what Heller's doing in this article. What he's really saying is that these questions of the the possible sentience or moral rights of non-human creatures are what bounds the human in some way. Yeah, brilliant. No, I think that that's right, and and I think that that does justice to the piece, you know, far far more than than uh, what I was saying. All right. Well, anyway, the piece is it's an extraordinary piece of writing. I mean, people should read it um, without fail. Um, my miss summary, that not notwithstanding. Anyway, it's called "If Animals Have Rights, Should Robots?" Question mark. It's by Nathan Heller. Uh, it's in the November twenty eighth issue of the New Yorker. I'm very curious to know what uh, listeners to our show think about consciousness, the human, robots, and rights. Okay, moving on. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Well, I'm going to preface my endorsement by saying that I this is all post-election related trauma, but I've been having trouble finding a way to be entertained since November 8th. And uh, basically, fiction is really not doing it for me right now. I can't escape into fictional, escapist, pleasurable worlds. It seems too trivial and petty. But I also, of course, don't want to spend every single moment being horrified by emerging news headlines. Um, so so something that sort of hit the spot for me that seemed that felt like the right amount of escapism, but also the right amount of sort of factuality was this uh, this documentary, a wonderful new documentary called The Eagle Huntress that just opened in theaters, I believe, a few weeks ago. It may only be in limited release right now. So people should, you know, if it's not playing in your city, take note of the title and wait for it to come out on Netflix or somewhere where you can see it. So it's called The Eagle Huntress. It's about a 13-year-old girl in Mongolia 
who decides to buck tradition and become the first female eagle hunting champion of her region. And her father has for years been, I don't know if he's actually won the championship. I think he has a couple times, but he goes every year to this to this eagle hunting championship where you train your eagle and you'll learn the rules if you see the movie, but you have various calls and you send it out to to bring back prey. And, uh, and so Aishalpan, this wonderful 13-year-old girl, decides to go with her father and be the first female competitor in the competition. Um, and it just, it was exactly what I needed to see in this sort of state of trauma that I was in because it's a great female empowerment story. The father-daughter relationship is fantastic. Learning about the Mongolian steppes and how people live there is really, really interesting. Obviously, beautiful, beautiful landscapes. There are a few sort of lapses of taste in the movie as a documentary. There's moments where the music is too swelling and inspiring and you really don't need it because the visuals and what's actually happening is inspiring enough. And there are a few little flashy montages that sort of take you out of the story, but that can easily be overlooked because of just the incredible vitality and beauty of watching this 13-year-old girl and her her father learn to eagle hunt together. So the eagle huntress playing in theaters right now, especially if you have a young girl who's maybe feeling a little bit saddened about the fact that we don't have a woman president and may never get to vote again, take her to see <laughs> The Eagle Huntress. Um, I like that you and I have both taken rest for you, Jin, uh, bird stories. That sounds really awesome. Oh, that's right. I didn't even think of you and your your, your birding. You definitely have to see it. Yeah, I, I, I will absolutely put that on the list. Yeah, I'm eager to see that. Um, Julia, what do you have? Uh, I want to recommend a song, a song that has been giving me good feelings. I've similarly been having trouble escaping into fiction until the Gilmore Girls, the, the transportive power of Stars Hollow and the travails of the wasps. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I'm proud to say it, but I did find myself like happily numbed by the Gilmore's revival. But apart from that, I've been I spent a lot of time with my family over the Thanksgiving break driving around. And uh, one song that stuck out is just drop dead gorgeous and passionately worth a listen um is donny hathaway's live version of you've got a friend which is a song that i know from the james taylor version it's kind of like a sort of a treacly song like it's a sweet song but in james taylor's rendering um is like so plaintively singularly sincere it's not exactly what i'd ever turn on to like have a good listening experience even though i have certain fondnesses for that album and for james taylor generally but donny hathaway who was an artist i wasn't familiar with and who actually came up in one of jack hamilton's pop race in the 60s episodes for slate plus um has an album in which he performs this song live and it hearing it allowed me to hear the lyrics anew it's this incredibly warm sounding recording and when he gets uh, to the chorus, the audience just starts singing. So it becomes this kind of call and response with the audience. And the audience just sounds, you just feel like you're in a warm room with other humans who believe in, like, helping each other and the fellowship of mankind. Um, and it completely remade the song for me. It's just a gorgeous track. Highly recommend. Nice. Well, that's awesome. Um, that's a Carol King song, right? Yep, yep. Carol, coming back around to Gilmore, full circle. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. All right, so last week I uh, endorsed Happy Valley, the Brit TV show created by the um, showrunner Sally Wainwright. She has another show 
called Last Tango in Halifax. People have been recommending to me via email and online. Uh, they are so right. It is such such a wonderful show. It stars uh, Derek Jacoby and Anne Reed as a couple that almost uh, got together then when they were 16 years old, and now it's 60 years later, uh, and they've reconnected. Uh, it branches out into all of their um, kids and relations interacting with one another in uh, chaotic and interesting ways. I uh, really, really dig it. Last Hang on Halifax is 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 fantastic TV. Um, uh, so check it out. Thanks, uh, thanks, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster at itunes.com slash panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest for Julia Turner and Dana Stevens and Seth Stevenson and Chris Eigenman. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. You did.